Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we talk about myths a lot. We talk about mythology. Either, you know, sometimes it's directly tied into a topic. Sometimes it's just kind of the, the icing on the cake, you know? Yeah, you'll hear us often refer to mythos a lot, mm-hmm. like in the background, especially like if we bring up topics like, I don't know, pop culture, HP uh, Lovecraft type stuff that we, we talk about often. So we're applying both myth as like the large general sense of the term and then mythos as like these sort of like fictional shared universes with histories to them, right? Yeah. So it's it's something we're always talking about. So it seemed fitting to do an episode where we say, hey, let's talk just a little bit about mythology. Now, don't worry, we're not going to attempt to do a like complete overall yeah. of world myth cycles. What we are hoping to do here is to uh, to provide you some of the basic tools to to roll through some of the different ways that we look at myth, the different ways that we dissect myth and understand what they mean to us and what the power of myth really is. Yeah, this is like very much like a bare bones intro. And I imagine that if there are people out there who've done any kind of cultural or anthropological studies of myth before, you're going to say, oh, but what about this detail or what about this thing that you missed? And 
you know, there was only so much that we could fit into a one hour episode. Right. And likewise, when it comes to examples, we're going to we're going to not we're probably not going to use a lot of examples in yeah. here, but we are going to end up using some of the like the, the basic Greek uh, examples that most of our listeners are going to be familiar with. This is not in a, by any means uh, intended to slight any of the fascinating cultures out there, but we're probably going to draw cards from the deck that most people are familiar with and mm-hmm. probably some cards from the decks that we've, uh, you know, built ourselves out of things that interest us. Yeah, in particular, like, I should probably just state this up front. Like, I, uh, if you've listened to the show before, you know that I'm a comic book nerd. Mm-hmm. You know that I uh, like superheroes and have done research on superheroes in the past. In particular, like, the research I did when I was at a university was about mythology, rhetoric, and Captain America, <laughs> ironically, because that Captain America movie just came out. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot of like superhero type examples or pop culture examples that will probably come to mind as we're talking about this, but also I'm going to try to stay on target. Yeah, likewise, I've been reading a lot of Chinese mythology recently, and so some of my examples are going to draw from that just because it's fresh on my mind. Uh, but all of it is going to be intended to, to to provide you with the tools to to go through these different ways of looking at myth, and uh, and you know provide something that that the listeners of the show can take with them as we uh, explore other mythologies, even uh, as a tangent in the future. So I have a challenge for us and a challenge for you, the listener, as well as we proceed. Um, let's also consider, right, this is a science podcast. And as we've been, we've been, we've been sort of inching our way towards this over the last, I don't know, two or three months with episodes mm-hmm. like Wicked Problems and Cargo Cult Science and things like that. But let's consider, is it possible that some form of science is used today as mythology for our present culture? Because I think there's something that there might be something there. Yeah. Uh, and if so, how is it? And then just for funsies, who are our scientific deities? Uh, you know, Robert and I have joked many times before on the show about how, like, we're putting together, we're slowly putting together a psychedelic Avengers of all <laughs> these psychedelic scientists that we talk about on the show. But, uh, in general, like, I feel like there are some scientists when you refer to them, they're referred to with the reverence that people used to refer to Zeus or yeah. Thor with, right? It's like, Carl Sagan can do no wrong or Einstein, you know? Well, they, these are legendary individuals in science. Yeah. And, uh, we'll get into the, the connections between myth and legend uh, here as we roll. Mm-hmm. All right, so we'll keep that in mind, but let's hit it. All right, so let's start with the basics. Uh, just the word mythology. Uh, where does it where does it come from? Well, myth and ology, myth and logos. Uh, myth being the Proto Indo European root mu is involved here, is in to murmur. Mm. And from this, we get the Greek mythos, meaning word or story. So this is going to be very important because as we go through this, you're going to see that, you know, and, and this sounds like a no-duh type thing, but there's an inherent connection between myth, mythology, and human language. Mm-hmm. And how that defines both culture and how we understand the world. Right. So, uh, of course, it would be named after murmuring and words. All right, so that's the word, mythology. And certainly I think when most, when, when a lot of us hear the word mythology, the first thing that enters your mind is maybe just a, you know, a quick glance at, at the Greek pantheon. Yeah, I think um, of like a, uh, um, Clash of the Titans. Yeah, like old, old god stories that mm-hmm. have a very human aspect to them. Um, and, and it's one of those things that it makes it difficult then to talk about myth in other areas, such as like, for instance, in talking about Christianity. Yeah. To talk about myth. 
some right, people hear you say myth and they take it as an insult because they think, oh, right. myth is a thing that's not true and that is just mildly amusing in big budget sandals movies. Exactly, exactly. And that's something I think we should try to dispel today, too, is like that myth is is larger than just these ideas. We think of them today as being fictionalized stories, right? Mm-hmm. But to the Greeks and the Romans that worshipped those gods, they were just as real to them as... Uh, Einstein and Carl Sagan are to us. Yeah, and it, and mythology, as we'll discuss here, is a powerful force. Mm-hmm. And even though you might you might think of uh, Greek gods and whatever as just you know mere uh, window dressing as just something that's just aesthetically pleasing, we are all living in the shadows of mythology. Yeah, and yet at the same time, the human experience. Cast the shadow of mythology. So uh, it's something uh, to keep in very mind. Very nice. As we go. Keep that word "shadow" in mind for when we get to good old Carl Jung. Oh yes. All right. So under this heading, though, is there anything that we can agree upon that's kind of universally <laughs> considered? Yeah, that's what a myth is. Yeah. Generally speaking, about the only thing we can everyone agrees on is that mythologies uh, are stories. They're narratives. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of disagreement on whether those narratives are inherently sacred. Uh, you know, which is to say, do they involve gods and the supernatural? Can you have a myth that doesn't involve a god or godlike being? Well, that's an issue of discussion. Yeah, and and another thing to consider here, uh, this is from uh, just the basic definition in the Salem Press Encyclopedia, is that myths are stories, beliefs, fables, legends, whatever you want to call them. We're going to sort of slice that pie up a little bit later, but. They reflect the culture of the people who write and listen to them, right? Mm -hmm. So, and what they're often trying to do is provide explanations for how the world works. Ironic, because we are working for How Stuff Works. This is a How Stuff Works podcast. So, uh, you know, while we provide explanations for How Stuff Works, uh, the old way of doing so was to say, well, the reason why uh, that lightning struck that tree over there was because Zeus was angry, right? Something like along those lines. Uh, so, for example, it was natural phenomena that human beings didn't quite understand yet. And so they told stories of heroes that were up against good and evil stakes to explain those things. So they explain our place in the world, or at least they try to, right, uh, to us. It's it's that old, like, sort of very meta thing of, like, the stories are us looking at ourselves. Like, fiction mythology is just, like, uh, us creating an eyeball that's looking right back at ourselves and then trying to explain ourselves to us, which is, is a weird thing to think about. Um, but it's everything from creation myths, like, well, how'd the world start? How, how, why am I here? Who rules the world? What's the afterlife like? Like all of that stuff stems from mythology. And there's so many shared similar themes. We're going to see that throughout all of the things we talk about today, from virgin births to great floods. Uh, they're constantly being reinvented and passed down. And I would argue, uh, even into today's, you know, uh, huge popular culture, epics of whether it's your superhero movies or your Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever, we see these played out in similar ways there. Uh, anthropologists and cultural critics have been trying to trace these connections for centuries. And we're going to talk about some some like key points, I would say, in the last, what, like 200 years of uh, mythological study. But it's complicated uh, and nobody has like a singular answer. So I, I, I kind of want to uh, dispel that right away. Like there's no, this is how it is. Right. There, uh, there are certainly interpretations that are more popular. Uh, for instance, the etiological 
explanation that you just uh, mentioned, the idea that myths are about explaining what the world is and how the world works. Yeah. Like that is one that a lot of views say, yeah, that that is one of the the powers of myth. That's one of the reasons for myth. But um, there are a number of different ways to look at it. And a number of these different ways to look at them are tied to specific um, uh, specific um, areas of study, specific um, uh, academic approaches. Yeah, and like it's easy to trace that back to like very simple things that we feel like we have a grasp on now, like the changing of the seasons or something like that, yeah. right? But at the time, it was explained through mythology. All right, uh, before we roll into some of the um, views on mythology, let's take a, a few minutes just to talk about the formal features of prose narrative as they relate to myth, legend, and folklore, because these are three terms that are often used interchangeably, but they they really kind of refer to different things. Um, yeah, and I think too, like uh, we should point out that the distinctions that we're about to give come from a book on Chinese mythology by is it Anne Burrell? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a book I picked up recently, and uh, in addition to being just a great exploration of Chinese mythology, it has a wonderful uh, some wonderful introductory material that summarizes some some key stuff about um, uh, mythology. Yeah, and it, it, this is great stuff, but it's also like I, I think that we should also question some of the definitions too as we go. Yeah, forward, I mean that's right? the, like, that's the thing when you um, like something to keep in mind with any any of this when we're talking about mythology. Yeah. Like mythology is almost a it it exists outside of our attempts to neatly yeah. categorize it. Yes, yeah, and so there's totally a danger fluid. in throwing too many classifications at it. Mm-hmm. But but I t- I tend to like this idea of just sort of breaking it up. So yeah, it's nice. Myth, legend, and folk tale. Uh, there's there's a table in this book uh, that uh, that lays it out on, in terms of like what's the conventional opening? Can you tell the story after dark? Uh, is this seen as a fact or a fiction? What's the setting like? The attitude, the principal character. So I'm not going to roll through the whole list, but for instance, in a myth, you're, t- you're generally talking about a non-human character. Mm-hmm. A legend is going to be more of a human character, and then a folk tale can be either one. Um, a myth definitely has a sacred feel to it. You know, the the gods, uh, superhumans, uh, godlike entities. Legend can be either sacred or secular, and then a folk tale tends to be secular. Uh, in terms of setting. Uh, myth and legend are just some time and some place where folk tales are timeless. Uh, as far as belief goes, myth and legend are essentially facts, and that's kind of a <laughs> that's, mm. that's a, a problematic term. But but we'll co- uh, yeah, let's address that in a second. You go on. Yeah, but but the myth and the legend, as it is told, it is real in some way, shape, or form. Whereas a folk tale is just pure fiction; like nobody is actually believing. Right. You know, in the boogeyman. Nobody thinks Johnny Appleseed right. actually walked all across exactly. the country with apple seeds. Yeah. So, so these are just some of the ideas to keep in mind. To flesh this out a little bit, let's roll through some examples. Okay. Uh, first of just straight up myths. So I think the, the Greek examples that come to mind most yeah. easily are probably, you know, stuff having to do with the origin of the universe. So the fall of the Titans, the rise of the gods, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the go-to. I think yeah. most of us, uh, and it's interesting. I wonder why that's the one like, uh, mythological pantheon that especially in Western culture, we still like really gravitate to. But I, I loved reading stories about yeah. that and Norse mythology to a certain extent when I was a kid. Too. Well, those tales have been, they've been told and retold so many times as part of Western literature mm-hmm. that, that they're, that they've just been carried and held on a pedestal this whole time. One yeah. of the interesting things about looking at Chinese mythology is that you don't see that case. There's not yeah. a, there's not a Homer 
that is uh, that is retelling these things uh, necessarily. So you have the, you have less of a tradition of the mythology being upheld uh, by the scholars uh, throughout the ages. Um, in the Christian world, you have Adam and Eve, the whole you know Garden of Eden, the, the origins of man, the origins of sin. Um, certainly classifies as as mythology. Mm. Um, is elsewhere in the world, um, in Chinese mythology, for instance, there's a, uh, an archer by the name of uh, Yi, and uh, he shoots down the extra nine suns in the sky so that the world's not yeah, too hot. We don't need so many suns. Yeah. So this is a good segue into me talking about superheroes for a second, because you just wrote a fantastic piece on Chinese mythology connecting to the world of superheroes. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, in particular, you wrote about a recent DC Comics a team called the Great Ten that were based on Chinese mythology. So, listeners, I highly recommend uh, you go uh, and find that piece. It's on now.howstuffworks.com, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and and go take a read because uh, Robert does a great job with that. But I will segue from that, from Chinese myth into superheroes and into Western superheroes. I will make the argument throughout this episode that uh especially like our big budget uh DC comics marvel comics superheroes are archetypes for myth in the same way as like the greek gods were right so real quick like think of like pretty much every myth has like some kind of solar deity right well that's superman yeah uh, they've always got an earth mother it's wonder woman wonder woman was made of clay in one of her origin stories huh. you've got the death slash underworld deity Batman, right? Okay, yeah, the darker uh, figure. Yeah. yeah, and then there's always, like, the trickster, the Joker. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's interesting, like, and I'll, I'll keep coming back to this, uh, but there are, like, pair-ups. Like, you can apply these models of these archetypes uh, across both, you know, w- whether it's thousands of years old Greek-Roman p- pantheons or modern-day, like, comic books, or even, like, I'm kind of wondering with this this example of science, like, Who's our science Zeus? Yeah. Is it Nikola Tesla? Hmm. Or Ben Franklin? It's not, I don't think it's Ben Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, there's things like that to uh-huh. consider. Anyways, so that's, that's my spiel about comics, uh, to start off with, and I'll be bring, no, I think bringing a, it in. That's now. a, yeah, an important fact to make because much like the gods, well, you walk around, say, the desks in an office space, and you see the action figures on people's desks, totally. right? Totally. In many cases, mm-hmm. they are superheroes or superhero characters. What are they but the, the, the avatars uh, for little gods, the, the amulets, the protective presence. Yeah. And I would, I, you know, I'd also point out, too, that, like, it, in our sort of breakdown of, of how myth, legend, and folktales work out, right? Like we said, myth is considered to be fact. Well, nobody actually considers, you know, Superman to be fact, right? Nobody mm-hmm. thinks that he's a real person, or at least I, most people don't. Uh, <laughs> and... But the caveat being there is that there is such an intense devotion to the canon that's within these uh, mythi- myth- mythologies of whatever shared universe it is, whether it's Star Wars or Marvel or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That there's constant arguments about what is true and what is not within the canon. Uh, it doesn't necessarily explain how the world works to us, but it represents how we think it works and how we want it to work, uh, and it represents our ideologies, too. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, if Superman, even though no one is going to... It gets into the whole idea of hyper-real uh, religions mm-hmm. uh, that we covered in a previous episode. Yeah, absolutely. In that this thing that is certainly fictional still takes on mythological, even religious 
uh, power to the individual, to large groups of people. So if anyone out there is thinking, oh, you mentioned Superman and Adam and Eve in the same breath, that is insulting or whatever, um, I encourage you not to take it that way and to listen yeah. to the rest of the podcast as we explore the power of myth. And I think you'll I would, see why that's I would a valid also say comparison. watch the last two Superman movies very carefully because there's a lot of Christ imagery in there. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, him in cross like poses, him being backlit by the sun in the same way that Jesus is backlit in certain paintings. Huh. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff going oh, cool. on. All right, so on to legends. Uh, as we discussed, you know, it might be sacred, might be secular, but you have more of a human character. There's more of a grounding in reality, um, though it, there are still mythic elements to it. So in the Greek world, the example that came to my mind is Alexander the Great, a right. legendary figure, but definitely a real guy that existed yeah. with some possible uh, fiction, you know, springing off on the edges. Right. Yeah, it still allows for big budget movies to be made about him. Right, and it's <laughs> and it's more. Um, it's not in like pure mythic time. Like, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's more relatable to the present. Likewise, in the Christian, uh, in Christian traditions, you have various martyrs. You could maybe even make a, uh, an argument for some of the apostles. These are definite mm-hmm. historical saints. figures. Yes, like when, saints. when we talked about stigmata on the exactly, show before, yeah. some of those guys. That is definitely a, an example of, of Christian legend. Yeah. And then elsewhere in the, uh, in the world, uh, one example from Chinese history is the Yellow Emperor. Uh, who reigned from uh, uh, 2,698 to uh, uh, 2,598 BCE. Definitely a real ruler, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, additional information. He's taken on an extremely legendary status. Yeah, my experience um, living in Southeast Asia as a kid, too, is that uh, Chinese mythology and legend is popularized in pop culture and movies and television just as much as, like, our... Alexander the Greats or superheroes or Greek gods are. Um, are you familiar with the Once Upon a Time in China series? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I've never seen it, but I'm familiar with it. It's this uh, like martial arts wuxia uh, series of movies starring Jet Li, and it's ostensibly about the history uh, of China mm-hmm. at the time, although there's a lot of argument about whether or not it's been influenced by the state or not. And it's, uh. it's sort of like a revisionist history, but it, it reminds me of things like this or like uh, a lot of Jet Li movies. Like what's that other one? Uh hero. Is that what it's called? Anyway, yeah. the wuxia movies in general tend to play around with these legends. They're like historical figures that they make larger than life. And then finally we have folklore and, uh, certainly like in the Greek t- tradition, they have, they have their boogeyman just as anybody else has a boogeyman. I believe it's called the, uh, Babylos. And then you could maybe make an argument that, uh, Aesop's fables count as mm-hmm. folklore. You know, I mean, nobody, I mean, they're almost like extreme folklore. Like nobody's believing one of these stories about, right. uh, these interactions between animals. Or Briar Rabbit. Yeah, but they're, <laughs> but they still, they carry weight. Is and that Aesop? Informative about. No, that is not. Okay. Not um, Christian tradition, you have an inherited pagan folk tales. You have stuff mm-hmm. about witches. There's a lot of... Uh, Satanic panic. Yeah, and that's an interesting example where fable can mm-hmm. uh, become something else. Starts to define the world for us in yeah. a way that isn't necessarily accurate, yeah. And then elsewhere in the world, what, you have vampires, you have fox spirits, beast men, all na- manner of uh, yeah. of uh, supernatural entity that is it's just a folk tale. You know, it's like it, it doesn't have legendary or mythic status. So let's talk about the, like, how sacred some of this stuff has to be, right? Like, again, like, sticking to, uh, that's, that table of, of splitting up myth, legend, and folklore. Well, it says right here, myths are always sacred. So how sacred are they? 
Well, I think it's definitely hard to find examples of older myths that are that are secular. Like you're yeah. gonna most mythology as as we experience it is going to be sacred. But the comic mm-hmm. book examples really bring to mind an ex- a, a possible example of, of of secular mythology, you know, in a yeah. kind of hyper-real uh, fashion. So, um, an interesting side note here, often mentioned writer on the show, Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're, you've ever read his run on the Justice League of America. No, I have but, not. Uh, he's given many interviews where he said, well, his version of writing the Justice League was he saw it as, oh, this is the mythological pantheon of our times. And he set it up so that his roster of who was on the team uh, lined up archetypically with all of the Greek and Roman gods. Huh. Uh, and he, he had like this uh, infamous breakdown of how that all worked out and who, how he chose who would be who, uh, on on the team. Like, you know, you have your usuals like Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman. But then when you add somebody like Plastic Man, like, why is he there? And huh. Morrison says, well, everybody needs a Dionysius. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, Morrison also responsible for uh, bringing the, the great, great ten. ten. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. Here's the thing with with myth as we're discussing it now. And and again, this gets down to the problems of classifying it. Myth is like a narrative mold that grows over our lives and it grows over everything from big cosmological questions to what's on the dinner table. So you can think of it as, as mold growing over a statue of a man or a woman. And that body is kind of a physical symbology for our concerns. Uh, or if you're so inclined, you can think of chakras on a figure. Okay. Mm. So myth grows over the heart and the mind, but it grows over all the senses of the head. It grows over the sex organs, the breasts, the gut. It covers, uh, the dreadful scars of battle and the ever humorous buttocks. Uh, and is the butt sacred or secular? Uh, humans will always disagree on that one, but, but myth is ultimately polyfunctional. So it grows everywhere. It takes on various meanings. And that's not just the nature of, of myth as, as a whole from a, you know, from a, as just in general. I mean, we're talking about individual tales, uh, that mean a host of different things. Uh, the human experience exists again as the shadow of myth, but it also casts the very shadow. So I think yeah. polyfunctional is a good, um, description to keep in mind as we talk about all of these, because the more you try and pin it down and say, oh, well, this this myth is about your obsession with your mother, that is to limit the power of mythology to this one specific thing when it really is more amorphous than that. And that's what we see in a lot of the uh, attempts and conflicts over what myth means over the last, you know, 100, 200 years of uh academic inquiry, I guess, is sort of like attempts to constrain it and then attempts to balloon it back outwards again. Yeah, because you end up with, say, a psychologist or an anthropologist or or an historian. They're coming in, they're taking their discipline, applying Mm -hmm. it to mythology, and it's going to be sort of the vision of mythology that fits to their discipline. Well, and the funny thing is, too, is like they're human beings and they're just as subject to myth as the rest of us, and they want their answer to be the one answer, right? Like they all think like young thought, like his answer was the answer. And so did, I don't know, Roland Bart or, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, whoever, like the, all these people we're going to talk about today, they wanted to be, be the ones with the answer in just the same way as the people who uh, talked about Zeus as being responsible for storms yeah. wanted that to be the one true answer. So we have a, a lot of different interpretations. 
And uh, one individual, we'll come back uh, around to him at the very end, but there is a religious studies scholar and mythologist, William G. Dottie, uh, born 1939, he's still ar- around, but he's uh, retired, I understand. He identified no f- fewer than 50 definitions of myth, and this was in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, this is due to just all the anthropologists, psychologists, religious uh, studies uh, uh, individuals, uh, the- the- theologians, etc., chiming in on mythology. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will roll through some of these big ideas uh, concerning the nature and power of myth. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, so here we go. Let's uh, first talk about uh, sort of this 19th century universalistic uh, theory approach. One of the key individuals here, Frederick Max Mueller, 1823 through 1900, generally known just as Max Mueller, a German-born English philologist and Orientalist, as the uh, the term uh, of the, uh, was used at yeah, the time. Yeah, we, we probably wouldn't call him that now. Yeah, not not today. But it's uh, it's it's a good description to keep in mind in terms of the attitudes mm-hmm. towards uh, 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 you know uh, other people's belief systems and, and mythological uh, roots. He argued that over time, humans lost the original meanings of words such as sun, moon, thunderstorms. You know, the, the basic terms we use to describe the, mm-hmm. the, the cycle of things in the world around us. Planets. And, yeah, and that we gradually misunderstood them as myth figures and incorporated them into superstitious and religious worldviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's no coincidence that we named all of our planets after gods, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, like uh, our solar system has its own sort of pantheon of uh characters and archetypes as well that uh, there you go again science mm-hmm. application of science to myth uh yeah so with Mueller's in particular disease of language thing this is something we're going to see come up over and over again that language is like the culprit of myth it's where it all originates right like if we were uh uh without language speaking animals feral children for instance uh-huh. uh, feral children would maybe not need mythology right any more than like a squirrel would. Right. Uh, and it goes a long way towards understanding, again, human cultural communication, all our differences and our similarities, uh, and especially how we other, uh, other people. So I'm talking about capital O other. Okay. <laughs> uh, and how we understand the world in general, right? So, uh, Mueller seems to think more about nature as being personified as supernatural characters, right? Yeah. But he's also talking about language as being the, 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 the step that leads us there. Right. And I, th- I think this is a great example to k- kick off with because certainly if you took this as the only explanation for myth, that would be a very limited understanding of mythology. Yeah. Uh, but you can, cer- I can certainly see where this would be a part of the overall energy of myth as it exists in human history. Mm. Um, up next, let's talk about the uh, evolutionist school. Uh, one of the key individuals here, Edward B. Tylar, 
That's T-Y-L-O-R. 1832 through 1917, English anthropologist. So he was a cultural evolutionist, and he saw myth as expression of primitive philosophy. So this is another example of myth as considered by individuals immersed in a specific discipline in time. Uh, Evolutionary theory was changing the way we think about the world. On the Origin of Species by Darwin came out in 1859. Mm. So... Oh, there's there's another science mythological yeah, figure, indeed. Charles Darwin, indeed. an origin myth. I'm not sure which superhero he would. Yeah, be. I don't know. But uh, you know, so, so some went in. Some individuals picked up on on the evolution craze, and they went in decidedly racist and xenophobic directions mm-hmm. with this. Uh, but it's worth noting that, that that Tyler at least believed that human minds had the same global capabilities, regardless of their position on what he saw as the the ladder of cultural ascension. So he saw myth as an attempt to explain the world. Uh, again, getting back to the uh, itology that we were talking about earlier, he yeah. saw it as a proto-science. He also saw ritual as an application of myth, just as technology is an application of science yeah. to exert control. So myth is our understanding of how the world works, and ritual is our attempt to exploit that understanding for control. Yeah, ritual is, in his sense, the application of how we're trying to control outcomes in a totally chaotic world that... We don't know what's going to happen next, right? Yeah. There's going to be a storm that's going to hit and kill my family, or maybe uh, it won't rain and my crops won't grow. So I'm going to perform these rituals to try to make these particular things happen. I want to change the outcomes of reality. Okay, and you know it's it's interesting to try and like apply that to the previous theory. So you can imagine like this this thing we see in the sky, we we give it a certain amount of personality, and then as we yeah. reach out to it. As we you know at, at a loss of anything else, you know amid say the the ruins of our village. We might uh, ask it for help, and mm-hmm. then therefore personify it more and create more narrative energy for it. And this brings us to the myth as ritual school. And uh, one of the uh, key individuals here, Jane Ellen Harrison, eighteen fifty through nineteen twenty eight. She was a British classical scholar, linguist, and feminist. Harrison expanded on this notion of ritual and myth as these the spoken correlation of the acted right, the thing done. And uh, and this reminds me of some of the views that we'll discuss from uh, 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 Mercedes Eliade in the mm-hmm. future here. And up next, we have the uh, ideological interpretation of Andrew Lang. He was a Scottish poet and anthropologist, lived 1844 through 1912. Yeah. And so, you know, as we, we mentioned this earlier, but ideological means assigning or seeking to assign a cause to things. It's the study of causation in myth in particular. We're talking about origin stories, right? How yeah. how did this thing happen? Why is it happening? Yeah. Lang wrote uh, wrote a book, Myth, Ritual and Religion, Volume One. And uh, this is like a number of these older texts is available in full online if you just poke around for them. Um, but I wanted to read one uh, line from it to give you just sort of a sense of some of the uh, some of the attitudes that were thrown around in trying to figure out what myth is and what its power is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's talking about uh, some Greek and um, and Sanskrit uh, uh, writings about uh, about myth. Here he says, "Quote: We conclude that in Greek and Sanskrit, the myths are relics, whether borrowed or inherited." Of the savage mental status. Yeah. So now we're getting into, uh, oof, the, this is that period of time where I think like a lot of, uh, philosophical thought was struggling with what we now view as, I'd say, quasi racist territory. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like, 
you know, whether these theorists see themselves as being superior to quote unquote primitive peoples, but then not exactly applying the same lens to themselves in terms of like how we understand culture and how we use myth, right? Yeah, it's kind of like let me, I guess, was there a term for this? Like white splain you or. Yeah. Colonial explain you. I mean, what I keep thinking of is, and I, and you see this in, in a lot of these guys is the idea of the quote, noble savage, right? Yeah. Like the, the idea that, um, particular primitive peoples have these two aspects of themselves. And once we crack the code, we can figure out what makes them tick. And it's, it's, um, kind of grossly elitist. Yeah. It's, it's like, there's this beautiful thing about your whole situation. You're blind to it, but yeah. I, I am, I am far enough up the ladder that I can, uh, I can reach in there and figure it out for you. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's sometimes you get into that, that kind of icky area with some of these, uh, especially some of the earlier writings on mm-hmm. the subject. Um, up next, we're going to briefly discuss Franz Bose. He had this, um, this interesting take that was, that has been referred to by, as autobiographical ethnography. All right. And that, uh, that was a description that was, uh, thrown out in that book I mentioned earlier by Ann Birrell um, about Chinese mythology. He was a uh, German-American anthropologist, lived uh, 1858 through 1942. And the basic idea here was that the specifics of a primitive culture can be deduced from kind of a post-mortem of its myths, Mm. Um, which, you know, sounds like, in a a sense, kind of an oversimplification. And maybe that's probably an oversimplification of his work. Uh, But, you know... I, I can I can see the value in it. Like if you look at a person at a people's mythology, right. then you're going to learn certain things about who and what they are. Yeah. So uh, Boas is an interesting contrast to Lang because I think both of them are in this sort of weird period of time where like intellectuals saw themselves as like defining quote primitive peoples. Right. right. But at the same time, uh, if you look into Boas, like he was pretty staunchly against what he called white prejudice and racial superiority. Uh, and that he didn't think that it was like the job of anthropology to sort of apply that mindset to other people's. But at the same time, like the, there's, it's complex. Like I think it's too complex for us to get into in this right. episode, especially since we're trying to tackle such a big subject to begin with. It might be worth returning to Boas in a future episode, but just this contradiction between like not wanting to, as we were <laughs> calling it, like white splain, uh, <laughs> uh, d- to these particular peoples. But then at the same time, like uh, uh, saying like, Oh yeah, I, I get you figured out. Like one, once I look at your rituals and your myths, like I, I know what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. It is difficult because on the other hand, you have individuals in a different culture with a different language trying to understand individuals in another culture in a different language and mm. speaking about it within their own culture, within their own language, within totally. their own disciplines. And yeah, it gets, uh, it gets complicated the, pretty quickly. There's something going on here too about using myth to understand the world that also leads us to our fear of other people in like different ways of which we can try to apply that and make sense of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think you see a little bit of that here, but Boas was obviously trying to uh, push against it. All right, up next we have Polish anthropologist Bronisław Malinowski, uh, lived 1884 through 1942. And uh, his whole thing was that, that myth is a sociological charter. So in other words, if you want to know what's morally acceptable within a society, look to their myths, which end up reflecting and informing these standards. They spell out the important values, the rituals, the behavior. Um, uh, Claude Levi Strauss, who we're going to get to in a second, described this as Myth is a charter for social action. And then Levi Strauss expanded on this view uh, with a, a structural analytical approach that highlights the 
binary oppositions in myth that bring the reader, listener, the individual to a place of deeper meaning. So you're kind of narratively juggling the notions of social action in a way that a, a mere, you know, a mere set of rules carven in a piece of stone cannot. Yeah. Levi Strauss is one of sort of the, you know, first major thinkers in the last century to do that uh, language application thing here. Mm-hmm. And in particular, he's considered a father of structuralism, which we've talked about recently on the show. Yeah. Some people have asked us to please do an episode on structuralism or post-structuralism. I, we might. It, it's such an incredibly complex uh Theory that mm-hmm. I don't know that we could do justice to it. Well, sometimes what you have to do is just sort of dip your toes in it. Right? Yeah, maybe we'll we do that. Uh, but in the case of Strauss, he wrote a four-volume study called Mythologies, uh, and and the the idea here was that he followed a single myth as it uh, traversed from South America all the way up to the Arctic Circle, sort of like how we were tracing the origins of cannabis in, in that right. episode a couple weeks ago, right? So he's tracing its cultural evolution. Uh, and in particular, he has an essay. He has multiple things he's written about this, but there's a, a widely read essay that is free on the Internet if you just Google it. The Structural Study of Myth, in which he says, uh, and keep in mind, this is 60 years ago, myths are interpreted in conflicting ways, right? So he's looking at all the different ways that all these other theorists are trying to interpret them, whether it's through collective dreams or ritual or play or archetypes, all these things that we're, we're, we've either talked about already or we will talk about. None of them uh, go beyond what he calls, quote, a crude kind of philosophic speculation. So he kind of looked down on them, right? But then, like any good academic, he was like, well, I have the one single answer, and here it is. <laughs> um, he says, well, the paradox is that myth is both full of elements that contradict one another, right? Anything can happen in a myth. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, between different cultures in different regions that seemingly haven't interacted at all, there's similarities between their myths. Uh, and one of the examples he uses is the Native American trickster myth. Uh, as an example, he says, well, uh, it, it's a, it's a meditation on both life and death, right? And it's a, it's symbolized by both like a raven and I, I think it's either a coyote or a wolf. Uh, and those seem like they would be diametrically opposed, but they're not. And here's why. And I, I'm not going to dive down the whole Levi Strauss thing, but you can take a look. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Um, he also used Oedipus as an example. And he said, since myth is made of language, uh, and it can't be told without human speech, this is why we need to apply linguistics and structuralism to it in order to understand it. He takes Oedipus and he breaks it apart kind of like a musical arrangement, like an orchestral st- a score with uh, assigned beats to it. And he breaks up those beats into four columns. Uh, and through this, he tries to discern what a myth actually means, right? And what that mean, uh, meaning, the etiological eti- nature of that meaning, uh, by finding that the fourth column is the universal characteristic of man. Okay. So this is like his, his, uh, prime answer to what's going on with myth. Uh, and in particular, he also said there isn't one authentic version of a myth, but there's different manifestations. Hmm. And we see this throughout yeah. all of them, right? So, uh, even like in the examples of like that I've been giving modern day superheroes as being sort of mythic, right? Like their continuity is constantly changing and, and it's, yeah, it's you're talking about flux. Superman the sun god or Superman yeah. the Reagan esque uh, figure in uh, what the Dark Knight Returns? Yeah. The, the yeah. Title? Exactly, yeah. right? So like they're interpreted in different ways and applied in different ways. So he's like, he, he was trying to figure out what the fundamental units of myths were, and he mm-hmm. called them mythemes, which I like because it, if you split it, it's my theme. <laughs> um, 
and uh, I believe this was before the uh, conceptualization of memes too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's there's something connected there as well. Uh, he tried breaking them down in this very strict structuralist linguistic manner to find out what those fundamental units were, and he thought that there had to be some kind of universal law to all of them. All right, so we have some good material here. We have, we've we're, we've already rolled through a number of different ways to take apart the myth and figure out what it means. So let's talk about Sigmund Freud just a little bit. Yes, Robert, tell me about your mother. <laughs> yes, so Freud is mostly uh, known for for psychoanalysis, but of course, myth was also hugely important to him. He would keep all these these different uh, uh, you know mythic depictions of gods uh, just sitting around his office. And he saw myths as reflections of our unconscious fears and desires. So he viewed ancient religious characters as the manifestations of submerged human desires and therefore all religions as kind of a mass delusion or maybe a paranoid form of wish fulfillment. So this and, is where we get our Oedipal complex and our Electra complex from. Exactly. And so the idea here is that in these religious figures, you could find the universal truth of the human condition. The Oedipus one, of course, is probably the big one, probably the most well-known one. The the classic example uh, drawn from the, the, the actual myth here of Oedipus Rex, mythical Greek king. He's a solver of riddles that have to do with the human condition. So, uh, you know, Freud dug that. But also uh, the myth underlies the Oedipus complex, the idea that on and I'm and I'm summarizing here. Super paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. super paraphrasing. <laughs> but that um, it's like the dime store understanding of it. But that all children want to kill their father and marry their mother. Yeah, it's the uh, Jim Morrison version. Right. So that, that's that's kind of uh, Freud's uh, contribution in a nutshell to our understanding of myth. Yeah, uh, and then Freud's contemporary and, you know, sometime rival Carl Jung mm-hmm. uh, had a psychological explanation for everything. All these guys, man, everybody's just coming up with their universal laws. I've got it figured out. No, I've got it figured out. Here's my universal law. Uh, it, Willem Reich, who we talked about on a previous episode, spun out of these two guys as well with his universal law of how everything worked out. Uh, so Jung, he's all about collective unconsciousness, in particular archetypal patterns of thoughts and symbolism. He thought that myths were projections of co- the collective unconsciousness that we all share. Uh, and again, like super dime store version of this is that there's like this, uh, shared imaginary space between all of us and that we're all pulling our ideas from. And it's, it's natural to humans. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't quite define it, but uh, we're all pulling from that same space, no matter where we are in the world. And this seems to explain why all these myths from varied locations are so similar. So Jung argues, well, like deities, for example, in mythology, those are expressions of these universal archetypes. Uh, and, so what's been done with Jung's work is the psychological archetypes that he came up with are applied in a certain kind of literary criticism. Uh, and you can pretty much apply it to any story, right? Uh, it's usually very basic. Uh, one of my uh, former advisors in grad school would refer to it as the model fits kind of study, right? Where right. you're just, you're taking his model and you apply it to a text and you go, yep, that works. Uh, and th- that's, a, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's good enough. For some people, they want more meat on the bone. Uh, but a, a lot of the Jungian criticism is done as such. So, right, we've got examples like the hero, the anima and the animus, the mother, the father, the child, the sage, the trickster, uh, the fool, right? They're, these are all archetypes that show up in, in many of our texts, whether they're Literary, mythological, or, or superhero movies, right? Yeah. 
Uh, a really good example, I think, of how Jungian archetypes are applied in world building in like a fictional setting is Game of Thrones. Like, yeah, that's yeah. like reverse engineered, uh, mythology there, right? In that like George R. R. Martin, like clearly, he had either looked at this or other archetypal versions of mythology and said, okay, well, when I create my re- uh, religion in this world, right, like we've got a, a god of light. And then the seven, there's like what? There's like maiden, mother, and crone. Yeah, there's the, yeah, yeah and then there's the, the stranger. The stranger. The personification. And I would imagine the stranger lines up pretty well with Jung's version of the shadow. Yeah. And the shadow is this immoral remnant of our instinctual animal past. So it's sort of like this weird, like, dark side of ourselves that we don't want to admit to, but it's always with us. It's always following us, right? Mm. Like our shadows do. Um, and so, yeah, you can take this and you can plop it on top of like almost any story and map it out and it works. Uh, and in the same way, you can do that with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, which is another very popularized sort of explanation of mythology in the last, what, 50 years? Yeah, I mean, it's it's become synonymous with Star Wars, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so Campbell is renowned today as a pop mythologist, uh, and it's similar to uh, – th- there's way more to it than this. I, 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 we're really just diving in the shallow end here. Uh, if you're interested in this, I, I highly recommend you go out and read more about these these theorists and these thinkers, but – yeah, we're providing you with the IKEA toolkit. If you, if you want a, <laughs> yeah. if you want a real Allen wrench, uh, for, for extended use, uh, there's a, there's a different toolkit out there for you. We're just giving you the, uh, you know, a, a good overview. Campbell basically argues that like almost every story ha- uh, follows this formula that he calls the hero's journey and it plays out. And Star Wars is the one that everybody uses as an mm-hmm. example for this, not only because it fits it perfectly, but also because George Lucas himself claimed, oh yeah, I was influenced by Joseph Campbell and I intentionally did all that stuff. Uh, so he claims that he intentionally applied this three-act structure that breaks down into 17 sub-acts uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing here, but you, you know, if you're familiar with sort of just like generic, uh, film storytelling, it's going to be very familiar to you in the way that like, you know, stories have rises and arcs. There's calls to adventures. Uh, there's particular challenges that they have to go through and then they have to return with something. And in, in this particular, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell formula, he always says that you have to, the, the, the hero has to refuse to return back to the real world, but then they eventually do on some kind of magical flight. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And when you, again, the model fits. You lay this on top of Star Wars and it works out perfectly. Even even more interesting, like you lay it on top of A New Hope and it works perfectly. And then if you lay it on, on top of like all of the movies as well, the arc still works out. Yeah. So, OK, I tend to believe George Lucas that he looked to this quasi-academic for, you know, uh, a, a narrative application. I, I don't know about you, but like when I've uh, written fiction before in the past, I've actually tried to play around with Campbell's. Uh, formula. Yeah, I, I have at times uh, dipped into it uh, for sure because I mean, yeah, I mean, you have this uh, ultimately, which is a great universal narrative arc to and on which to follow a mythic character. So yeah. it's it's hard not to be inspired by it, or at least to look at it and say, all right, was this idea that I was thinking up how do, how well does that match up with the yeah. the blueprint here? For me, it was like it was along the lines of like, okay, 
am I sticking to this blueprint? All right, like how do I break that a little bit yeah. so that it's something that's the story isn't uh, so expected? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Okay. All right. So next, uh, we're going to discuss uh, Marseille Iliade, who we uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, he was influenced by myth as ritual school of thought, as well as Jungian uh, archetype concepts. He recognized the ideological aspects of myth, but he saw it as a vital link between ancient sacred past and the modern profane present. So imagine this bridge or even a like a, a, a time portal between our modern linear experience and its inherent uh, terror of history, which is a big deal for him. The idea that, you know, in, in, in brief, that since we are experiencing time as this linear progression, mm-hmm. it's all the more horrifying when we realize, oh, well, we as as a, as a species keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and yep. we're never going to get them fixed. Uh, that makes more sense in a cyclical mindset, which you would have had in the in the ancient past. So, imagine this portal connects our modern world to an age in which sacred time is cyclical. This means that the meaning of life is in the circle of things, and in this ancient age. People are one with the cosmos and the the cosmic rhythms, uh, while modern humans, according to Iliade, they're connected only with history. So myth is the portal. Myth is the that bridge that that brings these two worlds together. Plus, he also gets into some of the other ideas we've discussed here. I just want to read a quick quote from uh, his uh, his excellent book, um, The Myth of the Eternal Return. Myth is a history that can be repeated indefinitely in the sense that the myths serve as models for ceremonies and periodically reactualize the tremendous events that occurred at the beginning of time. The myths preserve and transmit the paradigms, the exemplary models for all the responsible activities in which men engage. By virtue of these paradynamic models revealed to men in mythical times, the cosmos and society are periodically regenerated. So uh, I, my encapsulation of that would be like the, the Battlestar Galactica version of all this has happened and it will happen again. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah, you could summarize it as saying that this linear experience of reality, it works for us, but it's missing something. And uh, when the terror of history begins to creep in, it's good to reconnect, to jump in that portal and reconnect with the sacred experience of reality. Well, that's an interesting segue into um, two guys who I feel like we have to mention here. They're, again, uh, con- connected to the sort of linguistic aspect, but they're also uh, sort of along the lines of Mar- Marxist philosophical thinking. Uh, Roland Bart is the first one, and he is infamous for having written a book called Mythologies. Uh, and, uh, man, I, there's it, one chapter in there that I really think that you would love. Uh, mythologies is actually more about messages and media than it is about myths per se, but he's using Levi Strauss's same linguistic analysis and structuralism to apply a Marxist approach to myth and in particular media. So he's writing this in the fifties, late fifties as the rise of mass media is coming on. Uh, and he interprets media with linguistic terms, applying them to sociopolitical analysis. Uh, I, so I, I think it'd be fair to say, like, without Bart, there would be like no Noam Chomsky. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so he he does this, and it's interesting. He finds that most of our modern myths are created by a ruling class through media. Okay. Now, again, again, like I'm not going to dive deep down that rabbit hole and make those arguments or, or, or argue with them. But there's a section in there that's all about wrestling, uh, and it's. Uh, 
one of the first sort of like pro wrestling, right? Uh, well, they didn't really have pro wrestling, but mm-hmm. they had that sort of narrative wrestling at the time right. that you could still go watch. It's one of the first sort of revelations of what we now call kayfabe mm-hmm. that I have uh, ever heard or read on the sport. Uh, and he basically says, look, they're pantomiming the archetypes of myth in every single fight. And these are direct quotes from uh, the book. He says, the function of the wrestler is not to win. It is to go through the motions that are expected of him. In the same way uh, as Iliad's, like, you know, history is repeating itself. We watch the wrestling match. We have expectations of what will or will not happen. And we experience pleasure by seeing this enacted. And he says that it's enacted through three archetypical acts, suffering, defeat and justice huh. uh, and it's fascinating I actually in grad school went to school with a guy who uh, took this and ran with it and wrote his dissertation all about modern day wrestling and mythology oh, cool. yeah yeah there's a there's a lot of myth in it you see it less I guess in the sort of modern um, American models yeah but if you look to especially if you look to the more traditional modes of lucha libre in Mexico yeah you see like straight up like by the by the books um Mythological representations in many cases to the to the point where sometimes American viewers look at it and they're like, well, I don't understand. Like, I knew that this good, the good guy was going to win. Yeah. I knew that the the uh, the Technico was going to defeat the Rudo and it played out exactly like I expected. There was no surprise. That's, that's kind the of the point. point. Yeah, it, yeah, that's the myth. That's his myth reenacted in the ring for you. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so then there's also Frederick Jameson. And again, disservice, like I, this is going to be a very like bare bones Jameson thing. But Jameson argues that myths actually attempt to disintegrate history huh. rather than repeat history by emptying history out of what their original meanings were and replace them with a narrative that seems like it's always been that way. So my example uh, from comic books would be. So comics had the comics code that tried to bowtlerize and regulate and ignore entire aspects of American life for decades, right? Like sex and profanity were just completely cut out of mm-hmm. comic book stories. So you had these superhero mythologies without any of, uh, like re- the real world that they were trying to explain within them. And these mythologies were pretending like that wasn't an aspect of the American community and acted like it had always been that way, right? Huh. Uh, so it's an interesting sort of take on it that like we're constantly revising history in the same way that we're constantly revising our mythologies. And again, like I come back to these, these scientist examples, right? Like we think of Einstein and our Einstein that we talk about and revere is kind of a fictional Einstein, right? Yeah. It, this also brings to mind the earlier example of myth as a, as a moral, uh, instructional tool. Yeah. So yeah, you're changing, you're, you're changing the comic book mythos and then using it as a way to, or an attempt to to say, hey, this is how you live. Mm-hmm. This is there's there's no well, there is sex, but uh, sure, but you're trying to make a moral but statement it's not and, part of and the inform the morality of the readers. Yeah. So the last one that I wanted to throw in there, and in particular because the the thesis that I wrote when I was in grad school was all about Captain America and mythological applications to ideology and rhetoric. Uh, there's these guys, Robert Jewett and John Shelton Lawrence, and they've written multiple books about something they call the American monomyth. And they've argued that Captain America as a character is indicative of this monomyth. Uh, they define it as an anti-democratic fantasy where a superpowered everyman saves society by stepping outside of institutions to violently punish villains. Oh. And there's more to it than that. I mean, these guys have written books and books and books on this. But 
Look at the last three Captain America movies. That's pretty much what it is, right? Uh, Captain America, even though he's an embodiment of America, he's always stepping outside of whatever institution he's part of, right? If he's part of the military, he has to do something without them. If he's part of S.H.I.E.L.D., he has to reveal that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been co-opted by Hydra or whatever. If he's a part of the Avengers, he has to step outside of the Avengers to set things right. He's kind of like this ideal for what the system should be, but is not. Yeah, maybe. yeah, in a way, but it's also like incredibly violent and sort of fascistic as well. <laughs> uh, and so he's demonstrative of this so much that they call it the Captain America complex. And much like with Young and his archetypes, you can apply the Captain America complex to a lot of pop culture examples and find that exact formula playing out. Especially, I find in a lot of our like '80s action movies, uh, the Captain America complex is pretty prevalent, like Lethal Weapon or Total Recall. Uh, yeah. Stuff like that. Like, it's always, you know, some strong badass who has to step outside of uh, authority to get things done, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's interesting. They argue that it permeates not only our media, but our political language as well. And I would say, look at Donald Trump's campaign right now. That's why a lot yeah. of people are attracted to it uh, is because he steps outside of the institutions, right? Or at least he claims to, to save society by punishing the wicked. I do want to say, though, like, while I think that there's something to this, their evidence is only from, like, a few scattered uh, sources, of, at least in the Captain America case. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I wrote the thesis I did, because I wanted to cover, like, the 70 years of American history that sort of goes on during the Captain America continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that's interesting with Captain America in particular, and I wonder if we're going to see this show up in these Marvel movies pretty soon, is he goes through these cycles where he's all of a sudden apathetic about everything. Uh, and in particular, he gives up his role as a national symbol because he no longer believes in the myths that define the nation that he believes in. Right. Mm-hmm. So he like there's a the first big example of this is in the early 70s. There's this Captain America story that's crazy where like it turns out like the big villain behind everything is the president of the United States. Captain America storms into the Oval Office, confronts him and the, and the president of the United States shoots himself in the face. Oh. And so after that, Captain America is like, ah, oh, America, I don't believe in this fantasy anymore. I am no longer Captain America. And he discards his costume and his shield. Does he move to Canada? Does he join Alpha Flight? No, he becomes a biker Uh-oh. and he calls himself the Nomad and rides around on a bike and and is a vigilante that way and then like eventually finds his faith in America again. Then it happens again in the 80s. It happened uh, in the 2000s as well. Huh. Like This is like this recurring storyline with Captain America. Interesting. And kind of from a uh, Christian perspective, like kind of like a harrowing of hell maybe even. You know, mm-hmm. This idea that even the great savior has to fall and descend and then rise. Oh, yeah. And it's in the, the the hellish thing about it, too, is right. Like he's never allowed to die or retire. Mm-hmm. Like every time, like you think Captain America's dead or he gets old or something and they replace him with a new guy, he inevitably comes back. It just happened like two, three weeks ago in oh, the wow. comics again. Like he'd been replaced by someone and then and he had he had turned really old. He was like 90 years old. And then, you know, some science fiction thing happened and he's back. <laughs> But, yeah, he's going to have to go through the whole cycle over again. All right. Well, um, you know, I just want to close out by mentioning William G. Dottie. Again, he's that religious studies scholar and mythologist. Um, he summarized a lot of what we've, talk- we've talked about in this episode in what is, in my opinion, a, a highly effective kind of eightfold view. So he said that, and, and I'm just going to roll them out here for you. Number one, myth as is an aesthetic device 
It is narrative literature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Myth is a tale of gods and other worlds. That's number two. Number three is myths explain our origins. Number four is that myth is essentially mistaken or primitive science. Number five is that myth is a text for a rite mm-hmm. or a ritual. That application again. Yeah. yeah. Number six is that myth is a means to make universal ideas or truths concrete and intelligible for the average consumer. Uh, number seven, myths are all about um, explicating beliefs, collective experiences or values. And number eight, myths constitute spiritual or psychic uh, expression. Mm, so that that would play out well with both like the sacred nature of myth, but then also Jung's uh, collective I- unconsciousness, which is sort of an, a psychic expression in a way. Yeah. And I think the big take home and one of the reasons I like uh, like this approach is that that I, I feel like a lot of us can agree that myths are polyfunctional. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. have they have various functions that they're carrying out at the same time, sometimes to the same consumer, uh, to the same, you know, the same person that's listening to viewing or hearing the myth or just yeah. thinking about it in the back of their mind. Uh, again, it's this it's this weird thing because that we're all living in the shadow of myth and we're casting the shadow of myth. Um, we, we may not think that that myths play a big role in our lives, but regardless, if we're talking about the Greek gods, uh, you know, the the Old Testament or just the the pages of your favorite comic book, mm-hmm. those uh, those the, that mythic energy is very much in play in our world. Yeah, I think if any lesson we can take from like this overview of all of these ideas about mythology. It's that there's no one universal law. Like a lot of these thinkers tried to say, I've figured it out. This is the key to the universe. Mm -hmm. And the key to the universe is figuring out how these stories about what the key to the universe is work. Right. Yeah. Uh, And in a way they're creating their own mythologies, but there are applications that you can, you can dip into from, from many of these things and pull them out and think about uh, anything really in modern day settings, whether it's science, politics, pop culture, and you apply those and you can sort of pull out the strings and go, oh, wait a minute. This is like the sort of behind the scenes of how society works, right? Or, or at least how we're trying to make sense of the world still. We're still looking up at the sun and the moon and the planets and nature and the seasons and going, I don't really know how this whole thing works, <laughs> but this answer, this is the answer I'm going to go by. And if I'm going to try to control it, I'm going to perform these rituals and everything will be fine. I'm going to see what Batman has to say about it. Yeah. And then I'm going to touch back in with my, uh, my normal linear life. Absolutely. Yeah. I trust Batman every day over <laughs> Carl Sagan. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, again, we're just hoping to provide you with some tools with some different perspectives on myth in your life, in your world in the things that you consume. Uh, we'd love to hear back from all of you on this topic. Uh, how does myth factor into your life? How do, how do these different ways of looking at myth factor into your belief systems, into your culture, etc.? Yeah, and going forward, too, as we cover, you know, we dive back into more science-y topics as we continue with the show, you know, now we've got sort of a foundational framework for myth when it comes up again when we're talking about crazy space satellites or uh, tiny bone worms that devour whales at the bottom <laughs> the ocean, right? Yeah. So uh, this is an, a nice way for us to have a framework. You know, it, as you're listening and, and myth pops up in your head again for a future episode as well, please let us know. Uh, let's synthesize some of this information together and learn together from it. The ways to talk to us about those things are social media. 
Now you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Tumblr, and you can find us on Instagram. We're uh, below the mind on all of those. Uh, and just to reiterate, I say this on every episode, I think, but uh, we don't just like post the podcast there and that's it. Like We talk about what, w- what we're working on outside of the podcast, whether it's writing or videos. We also share all this totally bizarre science and news information mm-hmm. that we come across in our weekly uh, endeavors. That's right. And be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, uh, including the landing page for this this one, uh, which will include some links out to related content and perhaps some outside material as well. And hey, wherever you listen to us, if there is a way to rate us and review us, uh, do so. Give us some some positive yeah. feedback. Give us some high ratings. That helps the show. That helps the various algorithms in play and is a great yeah. way to support the show we're without on a, spending any money. We're on a bunch of new platforms now, so uh, any, any way that you can help us kind of get a leg up uh, so more people will listen to it would be much appreciated. We're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, and Spotify. And as always, you can shoot us an email. Get, us, get in touch with us the old-fashioned way at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with with Zumo Play.